Business as Unusual is a thought-provoking podcast that explores the innovative strategies, disruptive ideas, and unconventional practices driving successful leaders and companies in the ever-evolving world of modern business. Subscribe, comment, and share for weekly inspiration with our host, Aisela. Hi, welcome to Business is Unusual. Today we're chatting with Frana of Frana BA Consulting. Welcome to the show, Frana. Thank you for having me. I'm nervous and not and excited. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. And we're going to have an amazing conversation if the four minutes before we hit record is any indication. <laughs> <laughs> And so before we hop into what you're all up to, which I'm very excited to get into, what is the last artist that you got lost in? Yeah, I think I, I finally read Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Oh. And so that has been, um, yeah, you know, as as her reputation is, it's been incredible. Um, yeah. And so definitely been still sitting with all of those thoughts on on Earthseed and, and that book. It's one of those ones that, you know, sits with you, as I'm sure you said you nodded. So I assume yeah. you've as well. Yeah, just kind of like sits with you all day that that you read it. And so I've been loving that as well. As I feel like I go through these cycles of rediscovering the amazingness of Tracy Chapman. And so mm. I've been on a, another Tracy Chapman kick within the last couple of weeks. Lovely. This is good recommendations. I tell people like I have a secret agenda of just getting this uh, constant onslaught yep. of new media that I'm going to be excited about. <laughs> yeah, yep. uh, It wasn't the intention when I started trying to find ways to get to know people a little bit. And I, I have to say, I, I'm not regretting the side benefit of it. <laughs> Will you tell folks that are listening a little bit about your business, you know, what you're up to, what, who you work with, what kind of work you do? Yes. I, as most business owners, I think it's changed over the years. And so at the phase and stage, at least I'm in right now, is that I'm a white caucus facilitator. So I hold spaces for white folks to talk about what it means to be white. And so the focus that I really have is on all of us white folks figuring out how to heal from white supremacy in community. And with that goal, the goals of the spaces are like, number one is wealth re redistribution. And there's always a reparations component to everything. Everything that comes my way needs to go back out in some component. And then the other two pieces are a place where commitment and relationships can grow. And so that's my goals are to provide a space for both reparations to be being paid and a space for relationships and commitment to, to healing from white supremacy to grow. The, and like I said, it's looked different, right? This is born out of, man, a dream I think I had 10 years ago as I was going through this journey and, and really feeling like I needed some white people around to have these conversations with as I was reeling and awakening and going through it. And and so here we are 10 years later, I've gotten lots of support to do it over the years. And just within the last year or two, I got out of my own way and decided to open the spaces. And so it's been like a dream in the works. I've done anything from working as like a subcontractor for all, all organization-wide anti-racism training. And then I work with white folks and with the, and coach white folks throughout that process. I've done it where I do like multi-day racial identity trainings as well. And then I've done like cohorts of a white peer support group kind of thing across multiple organizations. And I found that that this is really what I enjoy is like sitting in that, talking about those components of white supremacy versus there's like this, there's this thing that exists within white folks that's like, we need to constantly be learning about the experiences of our black and brown kin. And that's not a lie. That's absolutely important. And 
the way that we show up for injustice and for racial justice and be able to be of assistance in this fight for justice in multiracial spaces is unpacking our own culture and our own behavior, which a lot of it's rooted in white supremacy. And so I wanted to make sure they're create a space where that's what we're focusing on. We're not focusing on black and brown lives and um, and what necessarily like they're doing or how their lives look all the time, but looking inward on why, on how does discrimination show up within ourselves and our daily behaviors. And so now the spaces that I hold are a characteristic of white supremacy once a month open to anyone and it's pay what you think it's worth to you. And so who I work with is, is individual white people who are interested, willing, ready to sit in discomfort and and try and be vulnerable in the company of a lot of times strangers, but and hopefully with the goal that eventually those folks aren't strangers and it becomes a community of white folks that are that know that they're that we're not alone in this in this work. That that is actually so important in my own journey of anti-racism. One of the things that I've seen is that White, white folks have a lot to process and they also need to learn how to build community. And if they don't learn how to do that with and for each other, then what we end up doing is continuing to offload that onto our Black, Brown and Indigenous community members and allies and the people that we are trying to show up for, like you said. And so finding ways to identify how we show up effectively as opposed to in a burdensome way. Exactly. And that's where like I can speak. I've spent years of my journey showing up in a burden way and like that extractive way of demanding labor from folks of color, attempting to have these conversations with white folks and white folks didn't, I I didn't feel like again, and who knows, right? This is my past self, but I didn't feel like I was getting the information that I wanted. And so then I go do, then I extract it from a person of color. And so understanding that that's part of the goal of this space is that we do less of that. And we come together as a group of white folks and do some of that healing. So then we do less harm in spaces that are multiracial. Yeah. No, it's, I think it's really important work and I'm excited to see the awareness of it. I feel like I I personally am seeing more of that awareness amongst white people in white spaces, not just performatively. <clears throat> and, the, and then in also more skills building possibilities like this, where people can actually find that place to learn and grow so that they can show up effectively. What set the stage for this for you? And was there a, a specific incident that you had an aha moment to see this as a need or was it just a natural evolution or some combination that you can share or identify? Yeah, I think I think my experience is similar to a lot of white folks. It's yeah, I had no idea I was white. And yeah, I had no clue what that I was white and then what that meant, probably until I was about 21 and I had to go to a predominantly black country to really wake up to my whiteness. And so I studied abroad in Trinidad and Tobago. And yeah, I had all sorts of experiences there that when I was having them, it, it felt like I was getting treated quite differently regularly. Mm-hmm. And I think I had grown up being taught the majority and minority perspective of like, if I wanted to look at it through a racial lens, it was like white people are the majority. Yeah. And so realizing, so that was like my aha moment. That was like, wait, now I'm the mi- minority and I'm still getting treated differently. And with that, I could feel myself getting like more benefits, more privileges, right? More um, benefit of the doubt, more trust, right? Yeah. And so I think it was like my last week there and I made some comment, I can't remember. And I was with a, a bunch of Caribbean men that were friends and they 
took some time to pour some labor into me and really tell me about imperialism and what it actually means to be from the U.S. and what it means to be white and like their lived experience and their understanding of the economics of the Caribbean and what the U.S. has done there. And yeah, I remember getting on that plane and just be like awakened that process of just being completely struck by what, like, how can... I, I believed them and that was just so different than than what I understood that it was, yeah, there's no, just reeling through, just running through all of these memories of what was actually the truth that happened during those times. Yeah. And then at the time I had, was really dealing with some stuff and so started like talking to some people about it and was recommended to go to the Social Justice Training Institute as an undergrad and then dove into academic classes. And so for a long time, that was what a lot of this looked like for me was within the scope of academia and intellectualization. And yeah, and then I think within, and then as this, as I know, it's, yeah, it's a journey, man. It's constantly, sometimes we, I've talked about before in the concept of like rivers, right? Where, yep, there's a lot of times, yep, you, you can flow downstream and make some progress. And then sometimes you decide to fight that current and sit in the same spot for a while. And then sometimes you get caught in an eddy and you just sit in circles for a while. And yeah. And so obviously that journey has looked very different throughout that time. And so within the last couple of years, it's really been switching to more of a healing perspective of understanding that part of what white supremacy has done is, is traumatize all of us across the board and on different scales, depending on uh, your skin tone and the color of your skin. And so really figuring out, um, yeah, like how do, how that we all need to heal from this and that looks different for white folks. And so figuring out that understanding that we, I need, I'm healing, we all need to heal and why not have a space where all of us can, can heal together um, while also making sure there's an important action component. So each of my caucus spaces has a role play component where I come up with a situation that would say the characteristic of white supremacy is perfectionism. So I would come up with something that like a role play folks could have around perfectionism and how it shows up in our lives and be able to have white folks really start to practice having those conversations with other white folks about those white supremacy characteristics. Because as much as like healing is important, learning is important, sitting in our feelings is important, and like analyzing all of our behavior and our beliefs is important. It's also absolutely vital that we act um, because every moment that we choose not to act um, usually results in harm of, of folks of the global majority and, and our black and brown and indigenous kin um, that, that, that also needs to heal from this. So, yeah. Yeah, it's so, I really love that. And it's so important. And I think that one of the things that I feel have observed and experienced, honestly, to be quite tricky, is that the ways in which white supremacy is so insidious, that people can be in this work and reenact it on one another. And so that disruption that you're talking about, like coming from that place of healing, really owning, we don't get a cookie, we're not the good white person. <laughs> Like it's that we've all been indoctrinated and some folks are are still invested in their indoctrination. Like you present them with stuff and they're like, oh, nope, not for me. And that's where they're at. Like we don't need to be attacking and tearing them down. We can oppose their actions and behaviors. Like that's important. And we also recognize that most of us have the harm that we commit to others. We commit first to ourselves usually. And so finding ways to address that effectively because that pain, I've seen it with people who I know they really want to get there. And of, of course, I'm disappointed, but I also recognize that their ability to deal with it, face it, and hold that pain is clearly they're just, they don't have it. 
And so I can't help them get here, but I can oppose their actions. Like you said, being able to stop that harm is a very important, regardless of what they're feeling, because that's another piece that we need to be better about. Like your feelings don't, are more important than a black, brown, or indigenous person's life or access to clean water, right? So, yes. Yes. Um, I love it. I love what you're up to. Will you share some advice that you've received that's influenced the way you approach your work or something you took as advice? There was at one point, and I can't remember who it was, but but I, someone told me, right, with within my journey of, of racial justice, someone told me, like, it's not about you. Because <laughs> I think that's part of being white is that we get caught in again that like individualism, right? And and that hierarchy that we have. That's man, I have to do everything like correct. I have to make sure this comes out perfectly. I have to make sure I don't make mistakes, right? All this kind of thing within this fight for racial justice. Without that understanding that it's a collective, that it's a movement, it's a revolution that's happening. And of course, like, and we all want to play a role, but it's not really, it's not all about me. Right. It's not about like me and making sure that. I look good in this moment, right? That kind of thing. And that's offered me a bunch of, a bunch of ease and, and what I would call like white bravery to be able to have those conversations with white folks, to be able to feel that discomfort when someone says something offensive or harmful or hurtful and be able to step in to have that dialogue with someone. I think for years I never did it. Right. And, and I would just sit there and I'm sure you know this feeling of thinking about like eight, eight different things that I could say. And then what would I say first? And play, and by the time I can even work through to like my top two choices, the conversation has moved on. And now it feels like that moment is over. I now understand the moment's never over. You can always bring it back up again. And I think it makes me remembering that it's not about me, makes it easier for me to take action. Because as I'm getting ready to sit in that discomfort of having that dialogue with someone or, or interrupting someone as they say something. I remember that it's not about me and it's about, it's, it's about generations to come. It's about people that I love. And it's about my belief that, that we as a society need to be able to have these conversations more often to get to a point um, where they no longer feel this way. And so then more people are acting. And so it's just not really about me. It's a, it's about the larger movement and that's helped take some, yeah, some of that like white supremacy, internalized white supremacy pressure off of myself and understand that this is part of a, a larger picture at play. And every time I act, there's thousands of other people that are also taking this action at some point today in different zoom calls in meetings with families, with providers, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And that's helped me take more action. That's a really important and seems obvious, right? Until you realize no. that that's not how we're indoctrinated. I, I also feel like one of the things that you were talking about, like the, the have to do it all and in that perfectionism, it's an interesting thing that I've observed about both myself and other white women is this unwillingness and also lack of awareness of our own power. And then an inflated sense of self-importance. So there's this place of I'm, I'm supposed to achieve all these things, right? And be perfect. And also not actually be in touch with my competence and my power. I'm supposed to be compliant, right? Or there, And so it's, I, I feel like that dichotomy is a very interesting nuance to unfold, I guess, in terms of what you're talking about. Yes. And I think that's right in these, as we know, all of the characteristics of white supremacy come back to making sure power, making sure that whiteness 
continues to have the power that is continue what like the root of those pieces are right as you said that the challenge of white supremacy and oppressive systems in general is that they transform they've transformed over years they've changed what they look like in some capacities even language around it has changed right and it's constantly right as there's some attempted accountability all of a sudden it switches to like a different form so they're so we can get out of that accountability, right? And so understanding that so much of what it is about is that power piece. So when, so understanding that, yes, there are these characteristics of white supremacy. They're not set in stone. These are the ones. They're always growing. They're becoming part of one others, right? That kind of thing. And that's that piece that we need to, as white people need to think about all the time is the power that is at play and that we have in spaces. Yeah. So this is a, a pretty heavy lift in terms of the the world that we live in. And I can imagine there might be times when you maybe feel a little discouraged or overwhelmed. And when that happens, when you, if, if I'm corrected by assumption, can you talk about what you do to keep yourself going, inspired, or how you recharge so that you're ready to face and, and, and keep up with this? Yeah, I think my, you know, my first answer is, like, yeah, I, I go out on the land. That's like a, it's, yeah just like usually like silence if I'm with someone that's okay as long as then I establish that boundary that I want some alone time in this but yeah usually just out on the land pay attention to the leaves the little plants the sounds that I hear that kind of stuff I find really healing and nature is healing yeah and then I think the other pieces that keep me going is again that same thing that like understanding it's not always about me and so this is part of that larger piece and that if I get discouraged sad angry disappointed, all those things, is remembering that it's about generations to come, is that even if people, even if that conversation didn't turn out the way that I want to, the whole point is to be able to allow for more of these conversations to happen as generations move along, which is not like my belief system, right? That's a a heavily Indigenous belief system um, that I've been able to to learn about uh, and and I'm trying to embrace, right? Um, As well as I think one of the things that I've recently understood is that I need a lot of time to grieve. Um, grieving is something like within whiteness, we, I I feel like I've been taught within whiteness, grieving is on a timeline and it's, and it only is acceptable when you lose someone or lose something, right? Like it's attached to some thing and really grieving is, I, I now understand it. I do it daily, um, about many things. Right. And so, and I think so much of what we have to grieve as white folks is grieving our that um, our reality isn't the reality, isn't the reality for, for most folks. Um, and our reality has harmed uh, generations of communities for a long time. And as well as grieving where personally, like where I thought I was in my journey and, and where I actually am today. So like grieving that piece as well and changing it from, and, and calling it grieving right in my mind offers me that space for grace, for learning, um, that I've really needed um, to be able to continue to show up for these spaces and be able to continue to show up compassionately um, for everyone in the space that we're at for our journeys. I think I've, I've done this work for many years and I can say I've done it a lot out of anger and yeah, with, with a lot of anger for a long time and finding that tough time to tough, finding it challenging to find compassion for all white folks and, and where we're at, even though that's all I want is compassion for where my journey is. And that's all I've wanted for the last 10 years of, of me working on this. And so how do I continuously show up with that compassion? And a lot of that is through grieving. Mm-hmm. That's such a powerful frame. Like when I think about grieving my complicity as a yes. you know, generationally, as well as personally, 
as opposed to feeling yes. a sense of shame or guilt and saying like, all right, I, I have this to unpack and understand and accept and integrate. I like that as a way to, to make it more human. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that's what we suck at as white people is being more human, honestly. Yes. Yes. And we think the, the human parts of us are like, again, like we're, and we're as we've all been taught is that like emotions are like never something you bring to the table, you bring up. It's feelings focused is like, oh, is demeaned regularly. Mm-hmm. And so it's, yeah, again, how do you bring that hum- that full human piece as why would we have emotions if they're not useful? Mm-hmm. for us what like it just makes no sense and so that's the part we have to tap into because it's a beautiful side of us that is able to make us heal so much quicker when we can understand that piece but man it takes us a really long time and I'm still learning I'm still man I'm not there either so I don't think there's a there right that's one of the biggest shifts that I feel like I made a long time ago around that feeling yep. of you don't arrive <laughs> Yeah, like, thank you. like the things in life that matter and, and I are, are a journey and some days you show up real well and other days you're like not so great <laughs> and that's just not how it so- is like, like I used to say when my kids were younger I'm like I always gave them the best I had and some days the best I had was really not much <laughs> so that's what they got though yeah. and then that's the thing is and then when we don't show up our best selves it's like figuring out how to Offer ourselves grace for understanding that that's okay. We're all human and still hold ourselves accountable. So if we weren't at our best and still did harm, then that's that's also on us to be able to hold ourselves accountable to understanding that, yes, we still weren't at our best. And that doesn't mean we still can't apologize later, bring it up and say that I really didn't like the way that I voiced that. Those things those are all possible just because we're not perfect in the moment. We're not, again, we're not searching for that perfectionism, but like when we don't enjoy who we are, we can always hold ourselves accountable for that later. Yep. Yeah. It's a constant iteration. Constantly. What does success look like to you? On a, on a large scale, success looks like reparations mm-hmm. on a, on a systemic level, um, on a state level, on a local level, on a global level, right? That's what it looks like, large systemic reparations um, in some way, right? There's And so that's the, the big one I think of as well as, and then down to like the individuals as individuals understanding that we as white people also need to be contributing to paying reparations in some aspect and looking at like, where those reparations goes has to tie, it doesn't have to, but can tie into our lineage in some way, our history of colonization and imperialism and harm. So I think that's one way that success looks like. Another one is that the conversations, the conversations are a little, come with a little more ease. I'm not going to say that they're easy, but come with a little more ease when I think it comes with more people, these conversations being normalized. So talking about whiteness, bringing up racial dynamics, bringing up power in regular meeting spaces and conversations with your family and conversations with your partners. Um, that kind of thing is that's, I think what success looks like. And I think that's where for it's taken me years within the phase that I'm at in my business. And so it was really thinking about what do I enjoy? What am I good at? What keeps me out of my inbox? Cause I could really do without it. And, and admin time, those things I'm, I'm, I'm all set on those. And so how do I do things that like, that I can, that bring like my skill set to the table and are still doing the same work. And so it was like, okay, yep, of course there's like the training, the educating and all of that was like, no, I don't think that's my role. That's not what I want to do. And and I don't think that's where I'm most helpful. And so that has then come to then what are those goals? And so that's where I kept trying to switch my business model to the first goal is reparations. So like the most I can make 
from any sort of like contribution people give me is 50%. 50% is always going to folks of the global majority. And then there's a cap at how much I allow myself to make. And then everything else goes towards reparations. And then that's why I came to that relationships and commitment, understanding that I can't change anyone's mind. I can't educate anyone's way into the education is everywhere. The resources are everywhere. That's not the block. That's not why white supremacy is still thriving. Right. And so realizing that same like relation of influence and being like, yep, sure. I can sit here all day and continue to work in my circles, but how do we get white folks in different circles working in, in their circles of influence, right? Being able to have these conversations. And that's why I really wanted to create a space where relationships and commitment can grow. And so then there's a support system for white folks to come back to as we start to branch out and have these conversations with our relatives and with our families and with our work and with the structures that we're a part of. And so I think, gosh, I don't even remember what your question was, but, but I think that was like the, what does success look like? How do you, yeah, yeah, you bring all this, these tools to people, individuals, and then this larger um, systemic goal that you're contributing to. Excellent summary. Exactly. Yes. That ripple effect. Yeah, that's awesome. And I feel like that's the only way it works. The problem, I used to say, if, if we had a, if someone who could do the Superman thing and fix everything, we should 100% not engage that because that's never going to achieve an actual change. It's just another version of that top-down power dynamic that is white supremacy at its root, right? And that's where, again, like it's, we're working towards the culture shift. Yeah. And so it's, yeah, then it takes relationships. We, I think you and I both know that's what were those like formative moments in our journey? And every time it was like, never a stranger. Mm-hmm. It was never like the, and sure. There's like moments from certain trainings. I remember moments, but really the hit home moments are always from people that I have a relationship with in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I think it, I had the, I was lucky enough to know to shut up when I didn't know what I was talking about. I'm not always, but but in those spaces I do, I didn't know what I was talking about. And so it, it gave me the opportunity to hear things I wouldn't have heard otherwise and to learn from someone in a community setting where they were saying something and I'm like, huh, like, I don't know what's happening here, but I don't think I know what I'm talking about. And I think that that could also be a great moment. But once again, I had the relationship to show up and to say, right. all right, this is where I'm going to be today. And there's so much value in being able and white folks of us, us just listening. And we, that is, <laughs> whiteness does not make room for just listening or us sitting in silence. Those are not things that we know how to do very well. And so just sitting yeah. in it. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, it's just not, it's just not a common thing for us to be able to just listen. Yeah. Who do you typically work with? Uh, you've touched on this a little bit and just maybe expand more and who, thri- who would you say thrives with your services and your p- programs? Yeah, I think the goal is that is that it's a thriving space for any white person who's feels ready and willing to do some work. When I, I, Preface that yep, these spaces are full of discomfort and I'm asking everyone to show up with a level of vulnerability. So if you're willing to do bring some vulnerability and sit in discomfort, hopefully these are the spaces for you. Uh, right now, a lot of it is, is yeah, like white folks of like a varying age. I have, yeah, I have uh, gray hair folks. I have folks like in college, just like the complete spectrum as well as, yeah, I work with, I have a, a specific space for queer white folks. And understanding, like, how do we balance the the dualities of those? 
Um, yeah. And so I think it's like anyone who's willing um, to do those things, this is what that space is for. Um, but it's definitely not, um, it's not a space it, and it's a space. The goal is for this is the space to make mistakes is that this is the space to be like, wait, I've heard this before, but that didn't sit right. What does that mean? Or again, role-playing, like trying things out and realizing that how you think you, you could solve the problem is actually still problematic, but being able to understand that in a group of white folks that can help us move through that is really what we're going for. And yeah, so I think it's like anyone who wants, who's willing to do that work and, and at least thinks they want to in some capacity. And that's where, again, it's like, it's open, it's pay what you think it's worth. And yeah, so it's quite a variety of folks that have been showing up. That sounds fantastic. For folks who are listening, who are very interested, and they want to learn more, sign up, follow you, get in touch. What's the best way for them to to do that? Yeah, I think so. If you're in Alaska, the Facebook is like the web browser of Alaska. And so I'm Frana BA uh, on Facebook. And so you can get in, get in touch with me there. I also have an Instagram that's like a lot more personal mixed with business. I don't really feel like they're completely separate. So I don't try to keep them that separate. And then, yeah, my email is probably the easiest way to get directly a hold of me. I'd be happy to add you to like my newsletter list. And that's where I have found through through the last year, that's where most of my participants come from. And so that's where all of like the information about my programs are usually launched. And so that email is F and then my full last name, which is Burtness Adams, B-U-R-T-N-E-S-A-D-A-M-S at gmail.com. Thank you so much for taking your time to talk to me today. I, that was, I'm sure there's so many more things we could dig into, but I really appreciate you giving us a little taste of what you're up to. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. I really appreciate you. Yeah, the invite. <laughs> and thanks everybody for listening. Uh, check out what she's up to, please. <laughs> we need more. <laughs> more people doing this. I hope you enjoy the show. I love making it. If you did enjoy it, consider hopping over to the review portion of the platform you listen on and letting other people know about it or share the episode or the entire show with a friend or subscribe to the show. Definitely reach out, get on my newsletter, follow me on social media, and let me know what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd like to see in the future. While we love our guests, appearance on the Business As Unusual podcast or any Bicurian consulting production is for information purposes only and is not to be considered an endorsement of their business, business practices, or character. Please properly vet anyone you find through this podcast and generally before you do any business with them. Thank you for listening. Thank you.